Mark chapter 13. I'm going to have a friend come join me because it's a very long passage. Mark chapter 13. We're going to read the whole chapter. 1 verses 1 through 37. It's page 849 if you're borrowing one of our black Bibles. Page 849. Again, this is Mark chapter 13. Nikki here will be helping me read some of it. Mark chapter 13 says, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who was on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who was in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved but... For the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in heavens will be shaken. And they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, 
for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. What's happening? It's the rapture, Shauna, the rapture. The virtuous have gone to heaven and the rest of us have been left below. <gasps> left below? Where have I heard that before? It's the title of the movie. We were fools. And because we rejected God, tacitly accepting Satan, we must suffer through the apocalypse. Why did I put my faith in science and technology? Oh, this movie will haunt me for the rest of my life. Marge, what if the rapture is coming and I haven't led a good enough life? I could be left Below. God wouldn't spring the rapture on us unannounced. He'd send us signs. Marge is right. The rapture isn't coming. There haven't been any ominous signs. The book of Revelations has 404 verses. Add the number of people at the Last Supper. Minus the number of Filipinos in the Bible. And you get... 3,115 p.m. May 18th. The world will end next week. Spend your children's college fund! Thaw that turkey now! It's the end of the world! God loves you! He's gonna kill you! Uh... Oh, here's one. Revelation 6.13. Just before the rapture, the stars will fall to the earth. So all you hippies out there might wanna... For that one. <laughs> there you have it, folks. <gasps> the stars are falling to the earth! <gasps> Just as you predicted. Okay, guys, get ready. We're just seconds away. Oh, there's gonna be time. Six, five, four. I'm so proud of you, homie. Two, one. Goodbye, stupid Earth. Wait for it. 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 Ha ha! Life goes on. Nothing sets the stage quite like Homer Simpson, right? So uh, we read that long passage, and then you got to see uh, at least uh, how, how the Simpsons creators think about stuff like this. Uh, we're looking today at some stuff related to the end of the age, and uh, some uh, commentators have said that nothing brings out the crazy in people's theology, like talking about that, and uh, Homer's a good example. I think it's funny when he's trying to calculate, you know, how everything is going to happen, and right, people kind of get into that. One of my favorite examples was a book that was written, oh, you'll figure out the year, it was written, it was called uh, 88 Reasons Why the rapture will be in 1988. And uh, that book sold four and a half million copies, believe it or not. And, uh, and sure enough, it didn't happen in 1988. And so uh, that author wrote a book in 1989 and 93 and 94, each with successively less sales, right? I mean, this, this doesn't work so well after a while. Um, and so what we're going to try to do, you know, we have some fun there with Homer, and it's just a joke and whatever, but, but we're going to try to just kind of make some sense of this. And it's, and it's difficult, right? There's a, of all the commentators I read, a number of them had different things that they said, and, and all of them, 
you know, accept the fact that there's some real complexity in this, and there's things that are hard to understand. So we should approach our study of a passage like this that's filled with all this prophetic and apocalyptic kind of language. We should approach it with humility, right? We're not going to maybe understand everything that we could possibly understand, which might make some people go, well, then what's the point? If we, don't, if we can't fully understand everything, should we even study it? And yes, we should. We should study it humbly, but we should study it. Because the way we think about the future impacts the way we live now, right? If you think that this world is kind of burning up and just ready to be destroyed and you just want your ticket out of here as fast as you can, that's going to lead you to live a certain way. You're probably not going to love your neighbor quite as much because you're just going to say, how fast can I leave this hellhole? If, on the other hand, you believe that God is renewing all things, that when Jesus comes, he will initiate the restoration of this world, then you would begin to live in a way that says, I can actually help begin that now, and I can be part of that now. So how we think about the future impacts how we live now. So this passage of Scripture, this is the longest teaching that Jesus uh, gives us uh, in the whole Gospel of Mark. This is the most he has to say, um, and it all comes from this question that the disciples ask. And so what I want to do is I want to work through the passage, and then I want to um, focus in on what the main point is. There is a very clear, you'll see it, a very clear main idea. While there might be confusion about all these other things that we read, there's a very clear main idea, and we're going to try to land there and uh, camp on it. All right, so that's what we're going to try to do. Um, as we look at God's word, we need God's help. All right, so let's pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. Thank you for how you speak to us. Thank you that you do make so much clear. And God, I pray that as we look at this, that we'd be able to understand it and that we'd be able to have our faith nurtured and fueled and our hope and our alertness uh, would be, uh, come even more significant for us uh, because of this. Help us to see and treasure Jesus from this passage, we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, the setting is this. It's the Tuesday of Holy Week or of Passion Week. Jesus will be crucified on Friday, and what we've been looking at for the last month and a half or so has been the things that are happening on Tuesday. On Tuesday, Jesus showed up at the temple. He began to confront the religious leaders. He began to challenge them, helping them see that their religion and all the stuff going on in the temple was lifeless. It didn't have the, uh, the authority of God because they were rejecting God's Son, and he has this big confrontation. And then and at the end of the day, he leaves with his disciples. We actually read about this in uh, verse 1. It says in verse 1, and as he came out of the temple. So this is, this is finishing up Wednesday, or Tuesday. Uh, next week will finally be to Wednesday, all right? So he's finishing a long day of teaching. He's leaving the temple. And in the first four verses, he predicts that this temple that's so beautiful is going to be destroyed. Look at this, verse 1. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. This temple was spectacular. It was beautiful. It was big. It was impressive. And so they're leaving this temple that Jesus has basically condemned significantly, saying this, this place that's supposed to be a house of prayer has become a den of thieves. They're leaving it, and the disciples go, Jesus, look at this. This is amazing. Look at those stones. Look at that. They're spectacular. Let me just remind you what this might have looked like. I showed you this a month or so back 
uh, but it's worth seeing again. Here's a comparison that shows you the difference in size between the temple, Herod's temple of Jesus' day, and Solomon's temple. That's what King Solomon had built, which was splendid and amazing. People came from all over the world to see Solomon's temple, and you see it's dwarfed by Herod's temple. And that temple itself is actually then on an even bigger temple mount, uh, which is much bigger than a football field, absolutely enormous. And, uh, and so uh, it had these big, wonderful stones, wonderful buildings. Archaeologists have found some of these stones, and think about this. Some of the stones they found have, have been this big, 42 feet long, 11 feet high, 14 feet deep, and weighing over a million pounds. One stone. Right? So when they say, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings, they're not kidding. Right? They found columns, these sort of columns that are so big that you need three grown men to sort of wrap their arms around it touching in order to be able to get all the way around it. Just absolutely enormous. They go, Jesus, isn't this impressive? Right? Just like when you see something that's built that's beautiful, you go, wow, this is amazing. Jesus says this, verse 2, and Jesus said to him, do you see these buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus, isn't this place amazing? Jesus, it's all coming down. Whoa. Now that would have blown Jesus' disciples away for sure because think about what the temple is. The temple is the place where sacrifices for sin are made. The temple is the place where God's presence dwells. The temple is the place that all nations were to eventually see the glory of God and and be drawn to the temple. So for Jesus to say, the temple's going away, it's being destroyed, the stones you're so impressed by are going to be buried in the ground and dug up by archaeologists someday, whoa, I mean, this just blew their minds. So they leave the temple, they hear this, and I just sort of think, they're going, what? What did he say? Did I hear him right? And they're just processing this, and they walk kind of outside the temple. There's a valley, and then it goes up into the, the Mount of Olives, just a few-minute walk away. And they, would, they get there, and it says in verse 3, and as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, so now he's across the valley. He's looking from this, this, this short hill, looking down toward it. Peter and James and John and Andrew, some of Jesus' closest disciples, asked him privately, tell us. When will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? They're going, Jesus, you said this back here, but I, I'm not sure I'm tracking with this. Can you explain this? Right? And here's why they're so bewildered, and here's why they're asking this question, is because in their minds, the destruction of the temple would mean there had to be a destruction of Jerusalem, which would have to mean this is like judgment day. This is end of the world stuff. This is the, you know, the prophets forever had talked about the great day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, a day of judgment, a day of reckoning, right? This sort of thing. And so in the disciples' mind, to say the temple's being destroyed is to say the world's being destroyed. The end is near, apocalypse now kind of a thing. And they're going, when is this going to happen? Now, here's the thing. The disciples see the destruction of the temple And judgment day, or the kind of last day, they see those as the same thing. They see it as the same event. And what Jesus is going to show us in this passage is that those are actually two separate events. Those are not the same thing. The temple will be destroyed, and that actually happens in the year A.D. 70. And yet the 
judgment day has not yet come. These are two separate events. Think about it this way. Imagine you're out on a hike, and uh, there's a mountain range in the distance, and you see this big, impressive mountain, and you look and you go, wow, that's, that mountain is amazing. But then when you get up close to that mountain, what you realize is that it's actually two mountains, one behind the other. But it's not until you get close to the first one that you realize, oh, wow, there's actually a second mountain. The, the disciples saw it as just one mountain, and Jesus is going to go, no, there's two, and there's a gap in between. So here's a little bit of how this passage breaks down, just to understand this. I realize this is a bit more academic, but in order to understand what Jesus is talking about here, I think this is, is really helpful. So here's kind of an outline of this, and we actually showed you this by the way that, this, that Josh and Nikki read the scriptures, right? So verses 1 to 4, Jesus predicts this destruction of the temple. They say, how's this going to happen? And then in verses 5 to 23, that's the first long part that Nikki read, Jesus answers their question. He says, let me tell you about what's going to happen leading up to the fall of this temple. And then in verses 27, 24 to 27, that's what Josh then read, Jesus is going to say, now let me show you the second mountain. Let me show you what's really going to happen in the future day of the Lord. And then he goes back and he talks again about the temple in verses 28 to 31. And then he goes back to the second mountain and he talks again about his second coming. So that's a little bit of kind of the structure of what's going on. You go, well, how do you know that? There's some things in the language that we'll, we'll point out. You can see them in your English Bible that will help you make sense of this, all right? So, so we're just going to talk through this, make sure we understand what's going on, and then we'll land on a, on a main point, all right? So they say, verse 4, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. When they say these things, what do they mean? They mean the destruction of the temple. That's what Jesus had just been talking about. When will this happen? Now, these things, all these things, that, those phrases are going to be important later. So remember them or mark them if you mark in your Bible, whatever you want to do there. When will these things happen? And Jesus began to say to them, verse 5, see that no one leads you astray. That word see is the same word used in verse 9 to, and verse 23, be on guard, pay attention, watch out, be careful, see what do you need to watch out for, what do you need to be careful for, see that no one leads you astray, right? They had asked, Jesus, what are the signs going to be? What are going to be the indications that all this is going to happen? And Jesus says, watch out that you don't get led astray by what you think are the signs. He says, verse 6, Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, guys, you're looking for a sign, and all the things that you will think are signs aren't signs. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and natural disasters and people saying they're coming in my name. Those aren't signs. They're not anything. That's just life in a fallen world. They're the beginning of the birth pains. That's it. Right? I've got a friend who uh, was telling me about uh, when his youngest child was born. He was in the room there with his wife. And every time she'd get a big contraction and push, he'd go, way to go, honey. That's it. That's the last one. Just push one more. Just one more. And then another would come and he'd go, that's the last one, one more, come on. You know, and, and after about five or six times of this, the nurse was like, stop it. You're going to discourage her. That's not the last one. You'll know when the baby's here. 
Until then, be quiet. It's just the birth pains. It's the normal process. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying all these things that are going to get you riled up and are going to people go, ooh, do you think that person's the Antichrist? And ooh, do you think that person's a geopolitical thing talked about? Forget it. That's just life. That's the beginning. You'll know when the baby's here. You'll know when it happens. Verse 9, again, but be on guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. By the way, everything he's talking about here is what we read in the book of Acts. Right? The persecution rises against the church. Because of that persecution, believers are dispersed all over the world to all different nations. They're preaching the gospel. Verse 11, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you're about to say, but say whatever's given to you in that hour, for it's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And then he says family's going to betray you. There's going to be brother against brother and father against kid and all these sorts of things. Verse 13, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Through all this, Jesus is saying, the things that look like signs aren't signs. They're just birth pains, and you'll know when the baby's here. Now, it doesn't mean they're easy. It's going to take a great deal of endurance when your family's betraying you and and you're standing before a government that's hostile to you, all things that these very disciples had to do. But he says, be on guard, stand firm, don't let it freak you out. This is part of normal life. Okay, well, when's the baby coming? Well, that's what he says next in verse 14. Verse 14 says this, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, then Mark adds this little editorial comment, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. What's he saying here? Right up to this whole point, he said, when you see this, it's nothing. When you see this, it's nothing. When this happens, it's nothing. But now, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, book it. Get out of there. Run for the hills. Okay, well, what's the abomination of desolation? Well, Mark thinks you might wonder that, which is why he adds, let the reader understand. And and that phrase, abomination of desolation, it it comes from apocalyptic texts in the book of Daniel. Daniel 9, Daniel 11, Daniel 12, all talk about this abomination of desolation. And specifically, it has the idea of of when it says, uh, standing where he ought not to be, has this idea of, of the presence of the temple being defiled. Right? So this had already happened. I'd mentioned some weeks back about how in 186 B.C., there was this uh, guy, Antiochus IV, who had set up an altar to Zeus in the temple and had sacrificed a pig on it. And that was a kind of abomination of desolation. 2 Thessalonians 2 talks about a future Antichrist that will come and that will be like an abomination of desolation. This is a, a kind of a paradigm for something happening that really shouldn't. And Jesus says, when it happens, you'll know it. Now, Luke, in his account of this same uh, teaching of Jesus, he makes it even clearer, and he says when, when the, the armies surround the temple, that's the abomination of desolation. So what Jesus is talking about is the destruction of the temple, which took place historically in the year 70 AD. And Jesus says when that happens, when the armies are gathered around it, you'll know. Won't be any question. When the temple is being threatened to be torn down and destroyed, Run says, get out of there. He says, pray that it's not winter. Pray that you're not pregnant. 
do whatever you can, get out of there. And yet even in the midst of all that tribulation, right, it'll be serious, verse 19, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation. But God's gracious still, even in the midst of that. And it says in verse 20, and if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, right, he goes back and says, there's more stuff that's going to happen. But it's the abomination of desolation. When that happens, when the temple's being destroyed, out of here. Book it. Then he says, verse 23, but be on guard. I've told you all things beforehand. He said that before, right? Be on guard, be on guard, be on guard. That's what he's saying. The things you think are signs aren't signs. You'll know it when the baby's here. So the temple's destroyed in AD 70. We might want to just pause right there, though, and ask, how could God let that happen? I mean, if the temple is the place that the nations were to come to, and if the temple is the place that the sacrifices were to be offered, and if the temple is the place where the presence of God is, Surely it's significant that God would let this happen, right? God is in charge of history. He establishes kings and he tears them down. So God allows this to happen. Why? Why? It's a historic statement that the temple is no longer necessary because the temple has been fulfilled by Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice who can finally and totally do away with sin. Jesus is the one who invites us into the presence of God because of that sacrifice. It says, we'll read this, that when Jesus was crucified, the temple of the curtain was torn in two. The place that signified God's presence was now open. And Jesus is the one to whom people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation will gather and will come around him. Jesus is the true sacrifice. Jesus is the true temple. And it's God's way of saying, we don't need that anymore. And after AD 70, that temple has never been rebuilt and does not need to be rebuilt because Jesus is the true temple. But be on guard. Pay attention. Stay awake. So that's all looking at the first mountain. That's looking at the these things that they'd been asking about. When's this destruction going to happen? And now Jesus says, but listen, there's, a, there's another mountain that you maybe don't see, and it's coming after that. So look at verse 24. Verse 24, it says, but in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from, hev- the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Jesus says, notice verse 24, but in those days, right? They had been asking about these things. That's the fall of Jerusalem. What about these things? And Jesus then says, look at those days. After that tribulation, something's going to happen afterwards. He doesn't say how long. He doesn't say how close together these mountains are. But he says, listen, you just think there's one mountain. There's actually two. And someday, in those days, in the future, beyond 70 A.D., There's going to be some cataclysmic things, cosmic things that are happening. And here's the pinnacle of it, verse 26. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from among the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Jesus says the pinnacle of what's happening in the future is I'm coming back. 
Now, he says son of man. Jesus often referred to himself as the son of man, right? And Jesus didn't do that only to signify that he really is truly human. He also says it because the Bible uses that language, son of man, to talk about this eternal king. Let me show you an example of it. And this is actually what Jesus is referring to right here, I think, very clearly uh, in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. Again, talking about this future day of the Lord, says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And Jesus says, in a future day, the Son of Man, the eternal King, is coming back. And he is going to invite and gather people from all tribes and nations and tongues to gather around and to worship him as king. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, here's what makes this especially amazing in the book of Mark. Three times up to this point, Jesus has predicted not that he'd be a glorious king, but that he'd be a suffering servant. Three times Jesus has said, I'm going to be betrayed I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to be mocked, and I'm going to be killed. I'm going to suffer. And the disciples never understood that. And yet you have this Jesus saying, I'm going to suffer and die, and I'm the eternal king who's going to reign forever. This is one of my favorite things about Jesus Christ. In Jesus, you have this diverse combination, and the Bible calls him both lion and lamb. Jesus is the lamb the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one who is sacrificed, who gives up his life so that his blood can be poured out to cover the sin of you and me. He's the Lamb of God. And yet he's also the Lion of Judah, the eternal King who isn't just dead, but who is risen and who's ascended and who's coming. He is the Lion and he's the Lamb. And this is the one who's coming back. Look again. The Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Jesus will come personally. You will see him. And Jesus will come powerfully with great glory. This is the good news of this passage. Jesus, listen, if you're a follower of Christ and you trust in him as the Lamb of God who takes away your sin, he's the lion who is coming back for you. That's the good news of this. I love what James Edwards, he's a commentator on this, he says this, this preview of the future ought not lure us to calculate when Christ will return, nor to fear what will happen, but to know that he will come to claim his own. His coming is his promise, and the gathering of believers to him is our hope. That's our hope. We don't need to worry about, is this happening, and is that nation, and this person. Jesus is coming back. That's the hope. That's what we rest in. That's what we get excited about. He says, verse 27, he'll gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. And then he goes back in verse 28 to these things, back to talking about the fall of Jerusalem. He says this, from the fig tree learn its lesson. 
As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. Now, you and I don't know much about fig leaves, right? And fig trees, probably, but everyone here would have known late spring is the time when, when these fig trees really start to plump up. And when you see that happening, you're going, ooh, summer's coming, right? It's like for us, when you know, ooh, the heat's going to break. Like, yes, it's coming, right? You pay attention to that. And Jesus says, see also when you see these things, right? Here he's referring back to verse 4, these things. When you see these things, when you see the fall of this temple take place, you know that he's near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus says this fall of this temple that you can't even begin to imagine, it will happen in your lifetime. Book it. Plan on it. It's going to happen. And then he comes back and he talks again. Let's look at the second mountain again. But concerning that day, right? And that day, again, that's language that Mark's readers would have understood for the day of the Lord, the future day. Not these things back here, but that day to come. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son but only the Father. Whoa, 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 whoa. Did you hear what Jesus just said? Concerning the day of the Lord, the second coming, the end of the age, whatever you want to call it, judgment day, no one knows when it's coming. Not even me, Jesus says. I don't get that. I don't get how a, a triune God, you know, one person knows something that another person doesn't. I don't understand how that works. But what that should tell us is we don't need to try to figure it out. You're not gonna. The only way to guarantee it won't happen is to predict it will. Because you don't know. He says nobody knows this. Verse 33. Be on guard. He says that again. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It could happen in a moment. It could happen right now. It could happen before we're done being here. Verse 34, it is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. I just used this illustration of a doorkeeper, right? I've never lived in like a big high-rise apartment or something like that, but, you know, you watch on TV and, you know, in New York City, there's these apartment buildings that have doorkeepers there, and these doorkeepers, their only job in the night is what? Stay awake. <laughs> just be awake. Be alert. Jesus says, that's your job. Stay awake. Pay attention. Be ready. Verse 35, therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Jesus says, listen, the temple's going to be destroyed, and someday I'm coming back. And, and in the meantime, there's going to be a lot of stuff that's going to make you go, ooh, 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 ooh. Don't worry about it. You'll know when the abomination of desolation happens, and you'll know when I come back on the clouds with glory. There won't be any questions. And so in the meantime, what's the point? What are we to do? What's the kind of big idea? I said at the beginning, the main idea of this passage is actually very clear. You want to see it? All right, 
Go back to verse 5. I want to just list through a bunch of verses, see if we can piece together what is the main point of this passage. This is one of the reasons, by the way, why we're studying it all as one big chunk rather than breaking it up, because I think you might miss it if if you don't see it this way. Verse 5, and Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Verse 9, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils. You'll be beaten in synagogues and on. Verse 23, but be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Verse 33, be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. Verse 34, it is like a man on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. Verse 35, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. Verse 37, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Class, what's what's the big idea? Stay awake, be ready, pay attention. Okay, not hard. To, right? If you just read it slowly, carefully, you go, yes, that's it. You don't need to understand Greek. You need to, don't need a dictionary. Stay awake. Okay, well, what does that really mean then? What does that look like? What does it look like to stay awake? Well, there's two things I think that it doesn't look like. Two things it doesn't look like. The first one is it doesn't look like, it doesn't mean get absorbed in all the end times details and predictions, right? Sometimes people go, oh, Jesus is saying stay awake, pay attention. That means I'm supposed to watch all of it. I'm supposed to, you know, try to get out a graph and a timeline and see how this all works. Eh. That's not what he means. In fact, the whole thing he said was all the things that look like signs to you, they're not. So stay awake doesn't mean that. And Jesus says, you aren't going to be able to figure it out anyway because I don't even know when it's going to happen. The second thing that this doesn't mean is to be afraid. Right? One of the things that keeps all that end times detailed stuff going is fear. And here's what I know. As I think about my life, maybe you're the same as me, I feel like there are two fires in my heart that are always sort of there. One is a fire of fear. What's going to happen? What does the future look like? This looks uncertain. How are my kids going to be? What if this happens? Am I ready for this? Right? And there's all this fear about all kinds of stuff in our lives. It goes, right? And you, you look at the economy and, oh, that's scary. And am I going to have enough money to retire someday? And, and right? you look at all these things and it's just fear is there, right? That's one fire. And then for followers of Christ, you've got another fire. It's the fire of faith where you go, God's in charge. God's on the throne. Jesus is the everlasting king. If he's for me, who can be against me? It's all going to be fine. Right? And you've got these two fires. And what I think for many people, they spend so much time looking at all these details and worrying about all the political situation and trying to pin the tail on the Antichrist and do all this stuff. And all it's doing is pouring fuel on the fire of fear. And they're worried, and they're panicking, and they're storing food, and they're doing all kinds of things. To pre- and if you're doing that for good reasons, fine. But so many people are just scared to death. And these are people who are saying, I trust in the King Jesus, and yet live like they're afraid. And so I need to do whatever I can to pour water on the fire of fear and to fuel the fire of faith 
to remind myself of the gospel, to remind myself of the promises of God. If I have to turn off the news, if I have to unsubscribe from that prophetic teacher, if I need to do these things, I need to turn it off. Stop feeding that fear. That's not staying awake. What is staying awake? What does it mean? Well, two things. First, and this seems like the biggest deal, is be faithful now. Be faithful now. Don't let your worrying about the future keep you from being faithful now because you're going to face persecution. You're going to face trouble. Are you ready? Are you going to be able to endure? Or are you going to crumble under it because you're so afraid? Be faithful now. And the best time to start being faithful is now. Jonathan Edwards is one of the greatest thinkers of American history. He wrote 26-some volumes of his great works and all kinds of sermons. He was a philosopher and a theologian and a pastor. When he was 19 years old, he wrote 70 resolutions, 70 commitments that he was going to make of how he was going to live his life. And here are a couple that he made that relate to this. He said this, Resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. It's a good commitment. If I knew I was going to die in an hour and I, and I wouldn't do it, I'm not going to do it now. Another one was similar to this. He said this, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trump. The last trumpet. If I thought Jesus was coming back in the next hour and I wouldn't do it, then I'm not going to do it. That's called being faithful now. Being alert. Being on guard. Being ready. The master of the house has put you there to do your work. Are you ready? Are you doing it? Are you going to be asleep? Now, here's the thing. You look at that picture of Jonathan Edwards, right? This is later in his life. This portrait was made. And he looks like the kind of guy that would say that, right? (laughs) Like, man, he wouldn't laugh at the Simpsons thing for sure, right? Like, he's a little buttoned up, right? Like, and he's got the wig on and he looks very serious. And, but remember this. A, that's how they looked in those days in pictures. And B, when he wrote these resolutions, he wasn't that guy. He was 19. There's a sense in which when he wrote those resolutions, Jonathan Edwards was not yet Jonathan Edwards. He was a 19-year-old kid saying, I want to honor God. I want to be faithful now. Maybe he looked like this. (laughs) I don't know. But he was saying it. I'm going to be faithful now. And I don't think it's any wonder that someone at 19 who's saying, yes, I'm going to be faithful now in the small things. If Jesus was coming back in an hour and I wouldn't do it, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to do what would honor him if he were coming back now. It's no wonder that God would use someone like that where hundreds of years later we're still talking about it. Be faithful now. And second thing that staying awake means is live with confidence and boldness. Live with confidence and boldness. Listen, Christian, you might lose the battle. There will be wars. There will be natural disasters. There will be betrayal by family members. There will be persecutions. It's part of the Christian life. It's part of life in a fallen world. You might lose the battle, but you will not lose the war. Because the lion and the lamb is coming back. So live with confidence, live with boldness, live with courage. If God is for you, who can be against you? Nobody. 
So live with that kind of courage. Live with that kind of faith. Live with that kind of hope. Jesus is coming back. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice in the truth of the gospel that you sent your son Jesus to live a perfect life in our place, to die a sinner's death on the cross for us, to be raised victoriously over death, to ascend to your right hand, and you promise that he's coming again. And so God, help our hope to be in that. Help us to be alert. Help us to be on guard. Help us to be bold and confident that you're for us. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.